Romans 8, verse 28. And if you're turned there, if you'd stand with me out of respect for the word of God as I read our portion of scripture this morning. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And Father, we ask just that you would help us now by the assistance and the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word Lord, we ask that every intent that your spirit inspired these words for, that we would be able to receive them and hear them. Lord, not just doctrinally, but personally in our lives, that you would speak to us in a personal way. Lord, give us an attentiveness and an expectancy, believing that there's something that you want to say to us individually this morning. We ask you to bless your word as it goes forth and that your spirit would speak to us personally. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps this morning it would help to have a little perspective or maybe you came here this morning in some way needing a little bit of hope and maybe considering the bigger picture, what we might refer to as the ultimate outcome may really be what helps you to gain some hope or to be able to have a little better perspective. Now, I have found as a Christian myself that keeping that in mind, the bigger picture, certainly was an important part, first of all, for me in choosing to follow Jesus Christ because if I only consider the here and the now and what other people would think about me or my own selfish temporal present interests I would have never chose to follow Jesus Christ it was that realization that hey there is a bigger picture here and I need to think about that in relation to eternity and the overall picture of my life as well as I found that as I've continued to follow Jesus since 1992 when I made a commitment to him that remembering and reflecting on the bigger picture many times is the thing that helps me to retain perspective and to have hope knowing that for those the Bible says who choose to become a child of God that everything that we have experienced in our life Everything that we are experiencing in our life right now and everything that we will experience in our life is ultimately wisely and productively being used by God for our ultimate good. That's what the text here in front of us is teaching us this morning and what it's about. Remember, Romans chapter 8 is this section of scripture that's talking to us about the internal ministry of the Spirit of God within our lives as children of God. The Spirit now lives inside of us and He is working within us. And most recently, Paul has indicated to us in chapter 8 that even as children of God and followers of Christ, that we will endure suffering in this present life. But Paul said, but remember, our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. And that even as we suffer and endure struggles in this life, Paul said, we often, in the midst of the struggles, we don't know what the will of God is all the time. Why we're going through them, what ultimately God is going to accomplish, or what the future holds. And in light of that, he said, not only do we not know God's will, sometimes we also don't know what to pray for as we find ourselves perplexed or dealing with certain things. But Paul said the glorious thing is that one of the ministries of the Spirit within us is, remember we saw last time in our study, is that the Spirit actually helps us to keep communicating with God even amidst life struggles and when we don't know what the will of God is, that the Spirit helps us within by making intercession according to the will of God. And here's a good thing. Even though we don't always know what the will of God is, in current situations or life experiences, the Bible says here in our text that there are some things that we can know, that we can be absolutely certain about, no question, that we can be assured of regarding God's ultimate purposes, regarding the big picture and the grand scale. That's what he means when he tells us in verse 28, though we may not know the will of God in certain things, he says, but we do know, verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So here this very familiar, somewhat now famous verse in the Bible, especially of the Christian who loves the word of God, this Romans 8:28 verse, Paul by the spirit of God makes this declaration of truth, which I believe is completely intended to inspire tremendous hope inside the heart of a child of God as they're journeying through this world amidst life's challenges and difficulties, the hope is that we can know that all things work together for our good. In other words, God who is in complete control of all things by his incredible wisdom, by his incredible sovereignty and love and plan for us, and by the great power that he has, constructively uses all things that we experience and encounter in our life and journey on earth to ultimately serve his good purpose for our lives. This is what the Bible is saying to us here. First of all, just take note with me, if you would, overall, that God's purpose, the Bible says, for your life is good. He says here that God works all things, don't miss that word, Toward the good. God's purpose for your life is good. He's a good and a benevolent God. Even when the children of Israel had made their most tragic mistakes when they were in the midst of heading into Babylon for 70 years to experience the consequences of their wrongdoing. And, and, and God says to them there in another very familiar verse, Jeremiah 29, God says, look, but I know the thoughts that I think towards you. And they're not of harm or of evil, but, but they're honestly to give you a future and to hope. In other words, God was saying, even though you're going to go through some challenging times as you walk through the consequences of some poor choices, and God says, but listen, don't think that I'm thinking evil, harmful thoughts towards you. He says, that's not what my intention is. He says, my, my intention, even as you must experience these things, ultimately is to bring you to a glorious end, to a good future. I have some hopeful, wonderful plan for your life. And all the more as we become a child of God, we see this assurance given to us under the grace of God and being in Jesus Christ that Paul says here, look, God's purpose for your life is good. 
Now let me say in relation to that as we study this this morning, we'll also see that that word means good by God's definition, not by our human definitions and ideas. And that's where the quandary comes sometimes for us mentally, even as Christians. Listen, this does not mean that all that happens to me in my life experiences are necessarily going to be good. I don't think that's realistic because the truth of the matter is in my life experiences, there have been some bad things that have happened in my life. It doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is good because truth be told, there are some things that have happened to you that are probably pretty bad. And honestly, there may be some more bad things that happen in your life. We live in a fallen world that's cursed by sin with selfish people who are living in rebellion. So there are going to be bad things that we're going to experience. It's a part of life. It's a part of journeying on this earth. You don't even have to do things wrong to experience bad things. Jesus came. He was sinless and perfect, never made any mistakes. He was sinless. And what happened to Jesus? The one perfect man. Well, let's see, he was spit on, he was misunderstood all the time, he was mocked, criticized, persecuted, uh, let's that, whipped, scourged, and crucified and put to death. And he was perfect. If that happened to the one perfect person, understand we're imperfect, so certainly at times we're going to experience difficulty. Sometimes it's self-inflicted pain, but other times, even just as we follow the Lord, we'll still experience bad things. This also doesn't mean that as things happen to me or you, that we're going to see everything as good. Because the truth of the matter is, when we go through hard times, sometimes things seem pretty bad, don't they? They appear from our perception of what limited perception we have, they don't appear good. Sometimes when we're going through things, they, they don't appear somehow as if, how is this possibly going to be good? How is this possibly going to work towards the good? This seems horrible, what's happening or what's taking place. But again, we have to remember God's ultimate purpose for your life is causing things to work for the ultimate good for the ultimate good for you. Now, Paul tells us here in verse 28, if you notice, as we look through it together, that this is something that the Holy Spirit gives us an inner confidence about. You see the term there where he says, regarding God working things for the good? He says, first of all, that we know. Now, when you look at that term there, we know in the original language, it, it's a term that speaks of an intuitive understanding or sort of an innate instinctive understanding in other words simply this it's not something that's known because of study or intellectual pursuit and learning he's saying look apart from experience or being having this explained to us there's just this inner testimony within the heart of a child of god causing us to realize th this is true Again, Jesus said that living within us is the Holy Spirit and he is the spirit of truth. So therefore, certain things that are true about God and true about spiritual life and eternity are just going to be an inner testimony in the heart of a child of God because you know that you have a good and loving and caring father. So therefore, there's this internal sense of certainty without even having to have it explained to us intellectually or theologically, there's just that inner testimony intuitively. I just, yeah, I, I know. I just sense in my heart that somehow do I don't see it, I don't understand it, I may not even feel it, that somehow God is good and he'll work this for the good. 
Just because of who he is and because of our understanding. Again, it has nothing to do with understanding all things because I often don't understand all things that happen. To me, to you, to others. It doesn't have anything to do with everything feeling like it's going to work out for the good because a lot of times we have really strong feelings that misguide us in situations. I love that one song that we sing in worship sometimes that says, my heart deceives me and my feelings lie. They're always drifting like an ocean tide. And one of the greatest mistakes many a time people make is, is we get caught into living by feelings. Again, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And a lot of times feelings contradict what a life of faith is about. So it's not necessarily feeling like it's going to work out for the good or, or the appearance of it. It's just about that internal certainty. We know this. The Spirit of God testifies it to our hearts. There's that sense, I have a loving God, He's in control, He's wise, and He can overrule anything or anyone in any way to work things according to His divine wisdom, according to the counsel of His will, and He has a good purpose in mind, even, even when He allows hardship to impact us in our lives at times. Now notice also here in verse 28 that this promise of God encompasses his usage, next two words, of all things. The promise encompasses God's usage of all things. Notice he doesn't say some things and we think that way. Well, yeah, I'm okay. I, I understand that some things God can work for the good. Or, or I understand that certain things, I mean, certain things, yes, yeah, certain things I can see how maybe somehow, long-term, big picture, certain things, yes, yeah, certain things I could see how that could be true about. Or, uh, I mean, most things. Okay, I'll go so far as to say, all right, yeah, God is pretty powerful and, 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 and if enough time, you know, time heals all wounds and hinds, uh, all, I could see, all right, I'll go most things. God says, no, all things. You know what that word means in the Greek? All. That's impressive, isn't it? I had to dig deep for that one. All it means including everything and excluding nothing. What the Bible is saying to us here is with God, there are no limitations with this promise. There are no limitations on God and there are no limitations on what this promise applies to or does not apply to. There are no restrictions. There is nothing in any way uh, that has to be a qualification. It simply declares all things. All things. That means the good and pleasant experiences, God can work through them and we're thankful for that. But even the bad experiences the unpleasant things we endure the painful experiences god can work all those things mixed into our life journey like a pot of stew and he can work all those things the good and even the bad and unpleasant experiences which often cause us to question how somehow they'll accomplish something good for us again that means this the life's difficulties and the trials that you go through Sickness and suffering and pain and, and losing a job or a financial crisis or some family difficulty or a divorce or someone you know, abandoning you or you know, the, the things that we look at is just the, the, even the tragedies of life. All things, all things encompasses everything, no qualifications. And listen, I guarantee even in this room this morning, there are some of you that, that there potentially have been things that have happened to you that were horrific. Things that have left emotional, psychological scars in your life that no other breathing soul maybe even still knows about. But God says, 
all things, all things, all things. You know, maybe it's some health issue, maybe it's some wrong or hurtful mistreatment, some painful thing that happened from another, or it's still happening right now from another person. Maybe it's some failure in your past or some disappointment, some dream that's crashed. All things, God says. Maybe there's a time in your life when you sort of walked away from the Lord and some things happened as a result of that. Maybe there's some difficult setbacks that you've experienced in your life because of certain circumstances, some loss that's happened, some you know, uh, past mistake or sinful action. Again, it's all under the umbrella. All things, no restrictions, no limitations, nothing that would hinder or put us outside of this promise. And God describes, notice next, how he accomplishes his good purposes as we go on in the verse. He says, we know that all things, next two words, here's how God does it, work together. They work together for the good. In other words, God takes all things and he makes them work together. One translation renders it, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. God, again, takes life events, all of my experiences through the journey of my life, uh, and he causes them to somehow, by his divine wisdom and power, kind of, again, I hate to use the term, like, like a big pot of stew. It's just all mixed in, you know, the bad things and the painful experiences, the letdowns, my mistakes, my failures, mixed with the blessings and the good things and the wonderful things of life and all that in a big pot of stew called your life. God somehow works with that and by his wisdom and, and stirring and working with that, he brings out something that results in good, something beneficial, something profitable. This idea here of God works together, really the idea there is kind of like mixing things together like a chemist working in his lab. If you can envision it that way in your mind, God, I've said this, but God is a master chemist. He is a master chemist. I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in the lives of other people, how God with incredible knowledge and such wisdom and sovereignty and control over all things can take the various different elements of your life through the seasons, through the journeys, through all the experiences, good, bad, and ugly, and in proper proportion, he takes all those things and like a master chemist in his divine lab, he mixes it together somehow in just the right ways so that ultimately it can yield something good and profitable as a good result. Again, if you think from a chemistry perspective, think of it this way. We know in chemistry, and I don't mean to give you a bad flashback for those of you who are glad to be out of chemistry, but in chemistry, certain elements in chemistry, they're toxic, they're poisonous by themselves. For example, chlorine. I wouldn't recommend ingesting a little bit of chlorine. I don't think it'd be a very wise thing to do. It's toxic. It's poisonous. Sodium in a real strong content is toxic and dangerous. But do you know what table salt is? It's sodium chloride. It is the combination of two elements which are toxic independently and by themselves. They're toxic and poisonous. But when put together in the right proportion... They not only produce something beneficial and good, they actually produce something that actually is pleasing and that's pleasant to many of us for different purposes. So again, God can take two toxic things, two poisonous things, who, if just by itself, it will be toxic and, and harmful and destructive. 
but in the right proportion as God works and like a chemist orchestrates his purposes in our lives, he can combine events and he weaves them all together and ultimately takes situations and experiences and in the end result he can bring out something good. The word means beneficial, useful, productive. The term there that's used there in the original language is actually an interesting word. It's synergio, which should sound familiar. It's where we get our English word synergy. And if you're not familiar specifically what synergy is, if you're not a real science buff, it's basically taking two elements that are independent and separate and taking two elements and basically allowing them to be put together so that they might form something better and to form something that they could not form independently or separately. So the result being this, the total effect of combining things together, two or more elements, the total effect of combining them together, the sum effect of the combination is way better than the independent or isolated thing by itself. And this is the idea here. It's a combination of different things in our life working in conjunction with one another in just the right ways. God accomplishes his divine synergy in our lives and he makes something beneficial come, something useful come, and it's exactly the way he works as he presides over our life affairs. So maybe this has happened in your life, you know, 10 years ago or, or 30 years ago and then maybe this present experience is going on right now and even if they're not interconnected maybe they're not even related and we don't even see it God who the Bible says Psalm 139 all of our days were written as book before one ever came to be he knows us that well God is this amazing way to take all those things and he says yeah, I shall this I'll piece it together with this and then that will connect with that and somehow he like a chemist just orchestrates all those things so that it's not in vain so that it's not just this horrific thing that just seems to have no purpose. He ultimately produces as a good effect. All things work ultimately for the good. And when you read the scripture, is it not true? We see God working in these ways illustrated in the Bible in numerous places. For example, think of the life of Joseph. Right? The Bible tells us of the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph has all these dreams that he receives from God and he realizes God has this wonderful plan for his life and he's sensing it in the dreams that God's given to him. And yet what happens? Joseph has major family issues. I know that's never happened to anyone in this room, right? No messed up, difficult, dysfunctional family, right? He's got major family issues. He's got multiple parents, he's got multiple siblings, and, and his siblings hate him, and they give him a hard time. Ultimately, they throw him down into a pit. He begs for pity. They say, okay, we'll give you pity. Instead of killing you, we'll sell you to a band of Ishmaelite raiders, and we'll let you be taken off to a foreign country. We'll go home and just tell Dad that some animal killed you. And he gets put into this foreign land, stripped away from his family as a young teenage man. So there he is, trying to adjust to this horrific life experience that he's already been through. He tries to do his best. What happens? He gets out. He begins to work in the house of Potiphar. He's beginning to prosper and be a good, solid employee. Potiphar's wife makes advances towards him. He does the noble, righteous thing. He says, no, look, you're another man's wife. I can't sleep with you. That's, that, would be, that would be sin against God. She turns it around and accuses him of rape. He gets thrown into prison. Now he's in prison, so I'd might as well try and make the best of being out in prison, I guess. So he tries to be a noble, hardworking inmate. He begins to be a blessing to the fellow jailers and some of his other prisoners. And, and, and again, he's like, just do me one favor. If any of you ever get out, he interprets a dream. When you get out, just mention me. 
that I'm innocent and, and what I've done for you. And, and what happens? His friend gets out, he gets released, and he forgets about Joseph, and there he sits in the prison even longer. And Joseph goes through all these experiences. We know ultimately what happens is God gets him out of the prison after a series of years and difficult, disappointing, hard life circumstances. He gets raised up to second in command in Egypt at a time when there was a great famine and his wisdom as an administrator puts him in the place where he's second to Pharaoh. He has an incredible plan. He salvages not only the land of Egypt, but helps other nations from starving. Ultimately, his brothers are brought back into his life. After the whole reconciliation process happens many years down the road, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And you see, it's a fitting example of how God is able to do that. You know, read the book of Esther, same thing. Her parents die, her uncles are taking her uncles taking care of her. The king decides, I'm done with this wife, I just need to get me a new one. He throws this beauty contest. I, I'm summarizing very quickly here. Throws this beauty contest. She gets forced into a beauty contest, again in a pagan culture. She gets picked, she wins. She now has to become this pagan king's wife, but then ultimately as a plot arises in Haman, one of the king's advisors is looking to exterminate the Jews. She's in the right place at the right time to be an advocate and her uncle Mordecai, a godly man, says to her, listen, how do you not know if maybe God has put you where he has for such a time as this? And everything that you endured, Esther, was all to get you to this one place, to this one critical hour for God's wonderful purpose and plan for your life. Again, we see this illustrated in the life of Daniel as well, a teenager put through horrific things, forced into the Babylonian culture, exposed to teaching, again, you know, being indoctrinated with Babylonian ideas. And, and you want to talk about you know, disrupting, taking a, a, a kid who's sheltered and putting him into the pagan world and then teaching him a bunch of pagan stuff. You're going to destroy that kid. Listen, Daniel didn't have an option. It just happened to him. But Daniel, the Bible says, purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. And Daniel took a stand for God in the midst of all the pagan culture he was in. And as a result, he influenced his friends and ultimately had an effect on the whole administration again and became powerfully used by God. Despite what happened, God worked all that out for his good. Now take note in verse 28, because this is important, who the promise and assurance is being given to. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who, please note this, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I can't have us overlook this because many times people just love to quote this verse, but they don't read the second half of the verse. This is a promise given clearly to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now that's a clear purposeful description of a Christian, of a child of God. In other words, the Bible's making it very clear the world generally or the unbeliever who's not trusting or following Jesus with their life really cannot, I do not think, claim this as a promise for themselves. This is a promise given to the child of God, the believer, because they love God, they're seeking to please God, and they are called and walking in the purposes in which God has intended for their life. They can have confidence, the child of God, 
and the assurance that God is working all things together for the good. Now, before we move on, let me just say one other thing in connection to Romans 8.28. Paul, I do not think, my personal conviction, you're free to disagree, I do not think here that Paul is saying as a blanket promise for the believer that all things will work out for the good in this life. Now, you're free to disagree. Now, listen, let me just say what I mean by that. As much as I'd prefer that to always be the case, that everything works out for the good in this life, and as much as many times, because God is so good and gracious, things do work out for the good in this life. Joseph, Daniel, Esther, a lot of times that is what God does. And I'm not saying God's limited to that. Many times things do work out for the good in this life, but I think the greater, bigger picture we have to remember is that Paul is saying, listen, we can know that all things work together for the good ultimately. That ultimately all things will for the child of God work together for the ultimate good. And I think that's why the next verses, which speak of the spiritual eternal reality, follow in context afterwards. Verse 29, he says, For whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the last verse quantified those who are the called according to his purpose that that promise was given to. And here in verse 29, I think you're given further explanation what it means to be called according to God's purpose. Well, what does it mean to be called according to the purpose of God? Well, here Paul says God's primary purpose for people really, I think he's in essence telling us, is salvation that produces transformation. It's salvation that produces transformation. First of all, that God would save us from our sin and assure us that we're going to experience eternal life ultimately with him. When you look at the terms in verse 29 and 30, we already read them together. Look at the terms there. They're all terms of salvation. They're all terms of the salvation process and experience. Look at the terms. Foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Those are salvation terms. Regarding God, let's look at it together. He says, for whom he foreknew, first of all, he predestined, whom he foreknew. Now that term foreknew means that God knows all things beforehand, before they come to pass. When the Bible speaks of what we call the foreknowledge of God, it indicates that God has, you could say, advanced knowledge. That God has advanced knowledge about everything and more importantly, everyone. Now, here's the difficulty. I don't possess foreknowledge. If I did, I'd be very wealthy right now. Because there are certain things we could do that would really benefit us if we knew things in advance. We don't have foreknowledge. We don't know things in advance. That's something as a human being that we have a limited capacity in comparison to what God knows unless God reveals something. So because of that, guess what? When you begin to talk about things like foreknowledge, predestination, election, free will, here's where I think the problem is, is that people fail to realize we are human beings, which means we have a finite mind and we don't share the same capabilities and capacities of God and his nature. So guess what? Here's what I've resolved in faith. There's always going to be a gap in my little finite understanding and the fullness of who and all God is. And so because of that, there's going to be that challenge in our understanding when we come to these things 
But how wonderful to know that God knew you and knows us completely and thoroughly from before we ever had our life begin. Not only does God have advanced knowledge of your life, but more than that, the Bible teaches that God has intimate and complete knowledge about your life. Everything about your life. Again, Psalm 139, read that whole psalm through, speaks of how all of our days already written in God's book before one came to be. He knows every chapter of your life. As you're turning one page at a time trying to figure it out, God already knows what's on the next page. He already knows what's on the next chapter, what decision you're going to make, what choice you're going to take. He, he has intimate knowledge. It tells us of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. So it's in relation to God possessing foreknowledge about us that verse 29 also says that he then predestines us for salvation. Again, from his foreknowledge, that indicates God appoints or predetermines beforehand. Uh, the term itself there, God predestinates, indicates the idea of destiny. God has a destiny for our life. What is that destiny? Well, that destiny is to be called into a relationship with his son, Jesus, that we might be saved and forgiven of our sin, that we might be sanctified and justified and ultimately glorified. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 1, 2, he says, believers are elect. The idea there is chosen or selected according to the foreknowledge of God. So again, predestination is a biblical doctrine that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that God controls and wills things. It indicates, hear this, that salvation is totally a work of God. It's a work of God. It's a work of a loving, just God on our behalf that's performed for us. God provided salvation God initiates the process to cause us to experience salvation. God is the one who draws us. God performs salvation. And he even says here in verse 29 30 that ultimately he then carries out the completion of our salvation until we are glorified in his presence. And again, predestination and election is a doctrine that's intended to encourage the saved person. Predestination and election is not a doctrine for the unsaved. It's a doctrine for the Christian to make them know and understand the incredible love of God for them. To see the incredible wisdom of God through the ages that he chose them before the foundation of the world. Spurgeon used to say, I know God had to choose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after I was born. And again, this idea, the doctrine of predestination is intended to encourage the Christian that God chose you to be a part of his family, that God wants you to spend eternity with him. And it's intended by God to make us realize his commitment to the salvation process, to perform it by his power and his keeping, and to let us have a sense of spiritual security. 
a sense that God's keeping power is at work in our lives and that if we slip and stumble, it doesn't mean every time, oh great, I, you know, I blew it again and now I'm off the good list or I, I somehow lost my salvation, that, that God's intended to give us an encouragement. Listen, Jesus said to his disciples, and I bet you it meant a lot to them. Remember Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In essence, I sense Jesus saying, look, before you ever chose to follow me, I already picked you. I already picked you. And I'm sure for those disciples who, like us, were more often than not making mistakes and getting off track and that it felt really self-comforting and assuring for them to hear Jesus say, look, I know, I know you picked to follow me, but before you ever did that, I already chose you to be on my team. I already chose you to be on my team. And, and how wonderful to realize this blessed assurance that God chose us before the foundation of the world as Christians to be saved, to become children of God. Now, understand, the doctrines of both, what we're looking at here, predestination or what we call divine election, as well as the doctrine of free will, which speaks of human choice and personal responsibility, are both found in the scripture. They're both found in Scripture. In fact, to me, they're like doctrinal truths that run like parallel lines straight through the entire Bible. Truth be told, you can pick a side and probably argue either side because both truths doctrinally run through the Bible and it's important that we believe and accept both doctrinal truths. The doctrine of predestination and electron, which runs through the Bible regarding the child of God and the Christian, as well as the doctrine that we're created with free will and we have personal responsibility and God holds us accountable for that. Both of those exist. Again, our finite understanding may not be able to fully grapple with how these things somehow Here's a term, isn't it interesting? Work together for God's glory and our good. But listen, from God's eternal perspective, there's absolutely no contradiction. God wrote the word of God. From his eternal vantage point, he sees exactly how they work together for our good and his glory. And I would just say this this morning, be careful. Be careful not to set aside faith for intellectual satisfaction. That is what has led to many people flying to extremes doctrinally where they want to cling to one extreme doctrinally and I think many times begins to come out of balance, stay balanced, hear me, in the entirety of what the scripture says. And as you read through the whole counsel of the word of God, as you study verse by verse, all of the scripture, let it speak what it says when it says it for the reason that it says it for. Don't just... Pick an extreme and find support texts to go with your extreme. You're going to get out of balance that way. If anybody tortures a text long enough, they can get it to confess to whatever they want. Doctrine is not, this is what I believe, and I can show you seven scriptures that support that. Doctrine is, what does the whole counsel of God say together in the context and the places and the proportions that it says it for, and who it says it for? It's often been said before, if you set aside the believer's election or predestination, you rob God of his sovereignty. If you set aside human free will, you rob man of his responsibility and his accountability before God. And let me say one more thing in relation to this. Please take note, and I know I've perhaps said this before, the Bible does not teach that God has predestined people to go to hell. 
That is a human assumption that people make. They assume, well, if the Bible teaches God's predestinated people to be saved, then that also means God's predestinated and predetermined that people are going to go to hell. That's not in the Bible. That's a human conclusion because rational mind thinks, well, if God did this, then I guess God had... Well, listen, God lives outside of logic. He's God. He's sovereign. The, the Bible teaches that people are cast into hell, the lake of fire, because they reject Jesus Christ, because they don't believe in Jesus Christ, and then they are held accountable in their free will for rejecting the drawing of the Spirit of God, revealing to them that they need Jesus. Now, regarding the believer whom God foreknew, look what he has predestined us for. It's beautiful. Verse 29 there says he's predestined us, look, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might become the firstborn among many brethren. So here's what God has predestined the Christian for, to be conformed to the image of a son. There's a primary purpose, one of many, that God has saved us for, not just to be spared from hell or to have relationship with him personally, but to transform us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus and make us more Christ-like. That is what God is doing, if you're a Christian this morning, throughout the entire rest of the journey of your life on this earth until you enter into eternal glory, is seeking to make you more like his son Jesus. Paul says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, as God has one beloved son, but the spirit of adoption, he's adopting more children of God. His ultimate goal was that we would all become more like, guess who? Our elder brother Jesus. Couldn't you be a little more like your older brother? Here's one time when that's a good thing. God's trying to make us more like our elder brother Jesus. And the reason is that our lives are all marred and messed up because of sin and the dysfunctional world that we live in. So his intention is to develop the image of Christ into us, making us more like Jesus. Again, this is the destiny that God intends for you and I as Christians. He's predetermined in saving us the destination being what? To make us more like Jesus. To make us more Christ-like in our nature, and our attributes. The purpose to become progressively more like his son. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Doesn't say we've been transformed. Be patient with yourself. Oh, no, you're in process. You're being transformed. Be patient with the fellow Christians around you. Man, that person's not very Christ-like. They seem pretty carnal. Look, well, they're being transformed still. Let God have room to work. We're being transformed as a process into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. Again, we don't change ourselves. The Spirit of God is who is changing us and transforming us to make us more Christ-like. So he uses outward experiences and then he's working inwardly to change and transform us into the image of Jesus. And can I say this? That's God's definition of good. God works all things together for good. You know what God's definition of good is? That I would become more Christ-like. I think God's definition of good is, well, I have a little extra money at the end of the month. You know, in the end, I'd get a brand new car as a consolation prize after this horrible season I went through in life. Look, God's definition is no, but if you become more Christ-like, that's good. That's really good because the world needs more of that and you're really bad. <laughs> so it'd be really good if I can make you more Christ-like. 
So that's God's definition of good. Well, let's look at verse 30 as we conclude. He says, Moreover, whom he predestined, which we talked about, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So Paul kind of zooms back the lens here now, you notice, and he kind of reveals to us the big picture from God's perspective regarding salvation, and he emphasizes, again, notice God's faithfulness. The big picture is salvation is a, a process overall. He describes the process here. Those that God predestined, chose before the foundation of the world, these he's also called. And that word called there indicates not just being invited, it indicates a process of actually being summoned or drawn by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that is a spiritual part of the salvation experience, that God draws a person by the Spirit. The Father draws people to Jesus. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, God from the beginning chose you for salvation and to which you were called by our gospel. So through a series of events and through people God brings into your life, he draws you, he calls you, he summons you into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. There are some of you here this morning, I, I can almost rest assured, that's the process you're still in. God keeps bringing people in situations and circumstances and he's trying to call you. He's in that process of calling you and summoning you. Listen, you need to follow Jesus and he's calling you. And he's saying, follow me. And you have to decide, are you going to follow him? But he's calling you and he's drawing you. He wants you to become his child. And it says, whom he called, these he also justified. Now we talked about that in depth in chapters 3 to 5. That indicates what happens at salvation. We are made righteous before God. He forgives all of our sins. He gives us a righteous standing. And then Paul says, and those whom he has justified, these he also glorified. Now take note of that. Glorified? Wait a minute. That speaks of the final act of salvation when we have a glorified body in the eternal presence of God, in eternal glory. But notice God speaks of it in the past tense. Wait a minute. How could he do that? Well, he's outside of eternity. He's outside of our... He's living in the midst of eternity outside of our realm. So because of that, from God's vantage point, he's just that confident about your salvation. Despite your fumblings and your failures and your shortcomings still, even since the day you started following Jesus, God's honoring your faith in the finished work of his son. And by the grace of God and his spirit's work within us, God's not even struggling in mental anguish. How this, God's not going, oh, but, but how am I going to make that free will? Yeah, they chose me and prayed that sinner's prayer and repented of their sin, but I also chose them. Listen, God's not in mental anguish. God just sees how it all works together and he says, I see it signed, sealed, delivered. I already see the final act. I'm that confident that you're going to arrive at home. He says, I already see that person is glorified, which just encourages us again that God takes full responsibility for the process, which is a great encouragement. Again, notice the pronouns. Let me read it in this way that you sense God's confidence and faithfulness. Moreover, whom he predestined these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you get the sense that's what Paul meant when he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hey, this morning, let me leave you with this thought. What have you experienced in your life? What are you experiencing in your life right now? 
The wonderful thing is this. If you are a believer, you can know that's not all in vain. It's not all in vain. No matter what it is or how difficult it is, it's not in vain because God is able to use even that that happened in your past that you just can't let go of. God can use that for your good. If it took that, allowing you to experience that, to get you to come to a place in desperation when you would reach out to God because you just can't do it on your own anymore, then God used it in a really good way in His great love and sovereignty. And if what you're going through right now is something that God uses to make you yearn for eternity more or to make you more Christ-like, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good process. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet following Jesus Christ, I ask you this question. When are you going to consider the bigger picture? Because there is a bigger picture. 